Coming up on this week's show, our Atari bringing back the worst mascot of the 90s. Read comics on your Commodore 64. And we go inside DMA Designs and Acclaim with Neil Glancy. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one of their books you absolutely need to check out, A Gremlin in the Works. If you enjoyed the games of the Sheffield-based publisher back in the day on the 8- and 16-bit platforms, check out this exhaustive history of the company, exclusive interviews and images, and lots more as well. And actually, you can save £5 if you order that book right now. You can check it out and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our friends at PCBWay. Now, if you're working on a retro project at the moment, they offer a fully featured custom PCB prototyping service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. And they offer services like 3D printing and injection molding. And you know PCBWay are massive supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 375, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And very nice to have you joining us for our weekly look back at what's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology from over the last week. And of course, plenty of nostalgia laid on for good measure as well. And in the second half of the podcast, I think that's when this show really comes into its own, when we welcome on a veteran of the industry to tell us their stories, you know, find out about the games they worked on, the companies that they worked for back in the day as well. And that this week, I know we've done so many interviews on this podcast over the last seven and a half years, but this one I think definitely stands out as a glowing example of why we do this show. Don't you think, Joe? Oh God, absolutely. So we had Neil Glancy on this week, me and Dan interviewed him and, uh, Man, just uh, it felt really good getting somebody on who worked a lot with the N64. You know, that, mm. that was kind of like what I was drooling over. You know, he worked on some really legendary games on the N64, Turok games, the South Park games. But I think what really got Dan going is uh, he was actually the lead developer on Walker 2, which unfortunately never came out. And he was involved in the original Walker for Amiga as well, which was really fascinating to hear about, wasn't it? Well, yeah, these games were obviously legendary titles and Neil worked for some massive companies. Mm. I mean, he started back in 1985 as a pixel artist, uh, an animator and a designer. Then he went to work for DMA Design. And uh, you're right, I think the first project he worked on there was Walker, which um, if you, you played Walker before, Ravi. It's quite a unique game, isn't it? Was it was one of my favourite Amiga titles. It was, it was very unique and even just the direction of your Walker, you know, going from the left, from the right to the left of the screen. Um, the idea of going through history and also killing all those like little pixel people was always very satisfying. Yeah, because I mean, you play basically a, a massive mech and yeah, you've got to control it. It's quite interesting controls as well because I remember you used the mouse and the joystick on that game Yeah, yeah. to control the walker, which I'd never seen anything like that before as well. Got great reviews back in the day. And then, as you mentioned, Joe, we went, went on to work on Walker 2 that was the cancelled sequel to that game. Um, although you'll hear in the interview that Neil reckons he might still have some floppy disks of it in his mum's attic. Oh, so um, I've got a little chat to him on email and just uh, see if he wants to uh, get someone with an Amiga to archive well, them for him. You, I'm looking you, over at my You did offer, offer, didn't you, Dan? And he did say, you know what? He was like, next time, oh, next time I'm over there, he was like, I might have a look. <laughs> Send him you. So that would be an incredible story. But yeah, it was an incredible interview, not to take away from that. 
Yeah, I mean, he went to a claim after that as well. He mentioned those South Park games and they had such a troubled development history that you hear all about as well. Then he went for Midway afterwards as well, even moving into, you know, virtual reality games in more recent years too. So a hell of a lot to pack into this week's interview, but an absolute legend. Neil Glancy is going to be our special guest on the show in around 35 minutes from now. Now, I always try and estimate how long the news is going to take because we always inevitably end up <laughs> waffling on a bit more than we expect to. But, you know, it's coming up in the second half. You know, um, a lot of people say to us that the retro hour is more than an hour. And I, I say it's like Poundland. You know, you're going to Poundland and not everything's a pound anymore. <laughs> Some of it's increased to five pounds. So, yeah, it's it's kind of like that. And to be fair, the, the retro one hour, 27 minutes doesn't have quite the same <laughs> ring to it, I don't think, does it? So, uh, yeah, Neil is on very soon. Though Before that, I mean, we do like to update you on what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last week. And uh, I saw a lot of people posted this story in our Discord. And we do have a Discord server for the podcast that you can hop on. Uh, everyone's welcome on there. And there is actually a, a channel in there where people can submit news. And I saw Gareth submitted this one. Um, Ash did as well. And this story has been everywhere. That Atari have acquired more than 100 retro computer and console titles from the 80s and 90s. And um, this includes stuff like, you know, the Demolition Racer franchises, um, Hardball as well. But the one that most people seem to be talking about... I knew I should have taken that left turn at Uranus! Was it something I said? What could possibly go wrong? Dan's favourite title. Bubsy could be coming back. Yes, Oh, sorry. I'm not sure how I feel about this, because um, I must admit, I, I don't mind the Bubsy game on the Atari Jaguar. It is solid. I mean, really difficult. It's actually my, my wife's favourite game on the Atari Jaguar, and if I've got it set up, she'll be like, oh, stick Bubsy on. She managed to get to level two once on it, but I think even watching, I watched James and Mike Mondays, mm. you know, that um, James Rolfe does and Mike Matei, they couldn't get that far. So my wife's actually better at Bubsy than the Angry Video Game Nerd, you, you, you which know, I think, you know, is quite an accolade. You know what? I had Bubsy for the Mega Drive. And I never had an issue with it as a kid. I had issues with the difficulty, but I never had issues with the game itself. And now, you know, pe- people kind of bash it and stuff. And I think it's just because of Bubsy 3D was so bad. I think people then just assume the entire series was bad. Whereas I, I don't have much of an issue with it. So I'm quite happy to see him come back, to be honest. Well, potentially come back. So all of these titles are going to be coming to the Atari VCS, right? I assume so. I mean, they're still kind of pressing on with the VCS. I was like, oh, mate. Try to say it with a bit of sarcasm. (laughs) They brought that Atari 50 collection out recently on the Atari VCS. Yeah, um, maybe. They are still persevering on. Apparently, they've had quite a big big price cut on the console in North America, I've been reading. So they're actually available, you know, more affordable than they were originally. But it does seem interesting that Atari, you know, it looks like they're really going down, pushing this retro thing, which makes sense for them as well. Yeah, it's interesting. They're talking about the games here, and there's a a quote from Wade Rosen, who's the CEO at the moment, and he's saying that uh, fans can look forward to seeing many of these titles re-released in physical and digital forms, in some cases even ported to modern consoles, which is really interesting. And then also, it looks like they've um, acquired Nightlife Studios as well, and that's really interesting because Night Dive Studios are the guys that have been, you know, redoing a lot of these titles, remastering some of the old retro ones. So they've also been improving the quality of them. So it looks like that kind of technology for the remastering process and the way that Night Dive do it, Atari may have a hand in that. And then they can take a lot of these kind of 
all the titles that they've acquired. You know, over 100 PC and console titles, also their old Atari catalog, and then kind of redo it with, you know, nighttime technology, uh, night dive technology, and, you know, re release. And uh, I wonder what kind of service this is going to go on to, because I knew that there was a. There was a cloud service, wasn't there, for the for the VCS? Yeah, it's like a store, I think. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got a VCS, must admit, I haven't used it in about a year. Might be a good reason to get it set up again and kind of look at what they're doing on there. Um, but I know they did do those physical cartridge releases, didn't they, a couple of years ago as well? Yes, of a bunch you're right. Of 2600 yeah. games as well. So it is something Atari have kind of done in recent years. Um, but interesting that they picked up all these, um, these classic... I mean, th- these games originally were owned by Accolade, Infogram and uh, Microprose. So basically it's, you know, some of their back catalogue that they've bought. And also a few flight sims as well. 1942 Pacific Air War, F-117A and F-14 as titles now that they've, they've bought in their catalogue. So yeah, it's an interesting range that they've bought there as well. But I think, yeah, everyone does seem to be focusing on Bubsy. And I think you're right, Joe. I think, you know, in terms of a bog-standard kind of mid-90s platformer, it wasn't too out there. I mean, I found the voice acting a little bit annoying sometimes. Oh, you can't say that without her on. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think she would actually admit it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Maybe, maybe. We did, I forgot. I forgot but, nah, I, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't, I mean, it was like Gex as well. It was that mid, mid-90s kind of Tudor era, wasn't it? Yeah. Where, you know, they just come out with these corny phrases and it, stuff, it, it, which it would does be great a bit sometimes. interesting to see the list of all of these coming out, you know, the, the, the final list of uh, all the titles that they've acquired, because I'm sure there's going to be something a bit more kind of headline grabbing than Bubsy. But um, there also seems to be like an effort in there to do new adaptions on past storylines as well. So maybe there could be some continuations. And, you know, if they've got the rights to these characters, they could maybe put them in new games. Maybe there could be a huge kind of Smash Bros style game that has Bubsy included. Bubsy was meant to be a cartoon back in the 90s. Um, and I think they made like a pilot, didn't they? And then it got cancelled. Maybe they're looking at like, you know, the success of the Sonic and Mario movies, thinking, right, we, we need a movie character. It could be like Bubsy, the movie coming to a cinema near you. Before you the wish. Oh, God. Yeah, Dan does wish. Can you imagine that? That would be the next big video game flop, like movie flop. I think he's due a comeback. I, I think they'll be able to do anything with this. You know, once you've got the right, you'll be able to do T-shirts, you'll be able to do all all sorts of kind of different things even outside the uh you know just re-releasing the title and putting it out there well i for one welcome back bubsy all is forgiven so we'll keep an eye on that story and keep you updated now something that looks very good um and it does seem to be you know one of the go-to platforms for homebrew developments over the last few years the sega mega drive slash genesis is getting what looks like a very cool fighting game now um this is when i say fighting game it's more in the vein of something like street fighter 2 not Streets of Rage. It's not like a brawler, is it? This is a, a one-on-one fighting game. Yeah, so like you say, I always kind of see Streets of Rage, you know, those kind of belt-scrolling fighting games. As they're beat-em-ups, Street Fighter 2, Mortal Kombat. They're fighting games. That's how I've always kind of seen it. I could, I could be wrong in terms of the terminology there and stuff like that. Obviously, everybody's got their own ideas about it. But as you say, this is going to be go for it for the Sega Mega Drive and the Sega Genesis, which... I really, really like the look of this. It looks just like a really polished Mega Drive game from what I've seen so far. And uh, it, it looks very much kind of in the vein of, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Eternal Champions or yeah. um, Saturday Night Slam Masters, which were both on, uh, on the Mega Drive and r- really, really fun games. Um, really kind of reminds me of that kind of like 
kind of like a superhero kind of bright look to it, but kind of like a wrestling WWF kind of over the top, like 90s vibe to it, which I really like the look of, you know, a lot of the characters are wearing like roller skates and, you know, the Mexican, is it Ma- is it Machador? I can't remember how you say it, the, uh, the masks they wear and stuff like that. You know, it looks really, really cool. And it's being brought to us by a video game company called um, iHeart Pizza Video. Um, and the guy behind that company is a guy called John Springer. And one of the reasons it's kind of building up a lot of hype is he's actually putting out quite a lot of videos, um, which look really, really cool of him kind of like hyping the game and saying it's coming in 2023. Well, that is the thing. I mean, I've actually got a clip here of one of his tweets where you can see the game running on a CRT behind him. Just small in the background, but if you want to see kind of the motion of it, I'll, I'll link that up so people can check it out. And you did use probably the, the optimal word there, hype. You yeah. just sound like such a good hype man. <laughs> Listen to the enthusiasm. And he explains the story about why the Mega Drive slash Genesis is so important to him as well. I really like this. It takes a lot of nerve to try and create an all-time classic fighting game. That's exactly what we're going to do. And you know why? Because when I was a kid, I grew up with the Sega Genesis. I never fit in, but that console brought me joy in some of my hardest times when I was lonely, when I had stage 4B cancer. And I want to pay that forward forever and introduce a whole new generation locally and beyond to my favorite gaming console of all time. I love Fort Wayne. I love the Sega Genesis. I heart pizza. And we're going to go for it. We're going to go for it. We're going to go for it. Now that is enthusiasm. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And, you know, there's a sentiment there as well, which I didn't even realise. So, you know, I, I, I love the name and the kind of the fighting spirit behind it as well now. That's the thing. I mean, obviously, the, the Mega Drive is a really important system to him. Um, and the fact that, you know, that these games just feel so at home yeah. on the Mega Drive, don't they? So I think um, it looks really good. And apparently it's going to be out before the end of this year. Um so looking at the footage, I mean, it does look kind of like it's in a pretty decent running state so far. I mean, the only thing he's kind of put out there front of centre that I've seen so far is screenshots of it. But like I said, there is kind of a few videos where you can see it running in the background. Yeah, so yeah, looking at a 2023 release, fingers crossed, um, for a physical release as well. And then he's, he's not specified what consoles, but it said it will be coming to some modern consoles. Um, I imagine, I've said this before, it seems to be easier to get these kind of games on the Switch and the PS4 than it is like Xbox. Um, but it'd be really cool if we see it on kind of like, you know, all free and Steam as well. Um, but yeah, one definitely to keep our eyes out for. That would definitely like feel very at home on the Switch as well, actually. Mm, so yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, look forward to seeing that. So uh, another one we'll keep an eye on. If you want to check out what we know so far, I'll uh, put that in our show notes as well on your podcast app and at theretrohour.com. Now, Ravi was practically salivating over this next story. <laughs> uh, you're a comic book fan, aren't you? I'm, I'm, all, I'm all three a of huge us, the comic one. book fan, yeah. So I've got tech magazines up on my... Uh, up on my kind of shelf here and then i've also got comic books and i've got boxes of comics i I used to be really into them graphic novels all of that and seeing a comic book reader is a good thing because i've you know a lot of people consume them in different ways um especially with like tablets as well it's really nice to to have comic book readers but seeing one on the commodore 64 is uh something very special and the thing about this is it actually works and it works well um i'm pretty amazed with this technology now i'm not that familiar with the c64 but um what this is is it's a guy called jan uh derogi and it's basically called slipstream and the whole idea of it is that it's a comic book reader 
but it actually streams it off the tape. And I'm just amazed with this. You're, you're a C64 guy, Dan, aren't you? What what do you think of this? Yeah, and I think you, you made a good point there. Um, and that is the most impressive aspect of this for me. Um, and there is a video that you can watch. Um, quite an interesting video. Um, <laughs> the whole video is read out on an, an AI voice, even though it's nicely edited and he kind of shows stuff as well. But there's like an AI voice that kind of reads out most of the video. You do get used to it pretty quick. It's the um, future, yeah, Dan, I mean, you will get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be doing the podcast next month, isn't he? AI, Dan. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it basically runs on a stock Commodore 64. And when I first read that, I was like, well, how has he managed to fit an entire comic book I mean, some of these are like, you know, knocking on for nearly 100 pages by the looks of this video. And he stores them all on like a, a long cassette tape. And I thought, well, the Commodore 64 has only got 64K of RAM. So how on earth does it store all that in there? But it turns out it basically uses, if you um, ever played kind of multi-load games on the Commodore 64 back in the day. So what you do is you'd have a level of like, you know, I think International Karate did that. So you beat one level and then it would load the next level off tape. Yeah, so 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 essentially, it's like it's buffering it, but like just but it's doing a little, it real time. a little bit ahead, you know. Yeah. So what what this does? Yeah, I mean, basically, it, it's it is streaming a continuous stream of data from the cassette and showing it on screen. So that means that what you're seeing on the screen is about six seconds behind what's loading off the tape. Very interestingly, if you want to if you want to read something on the screen, you can just pause a cassette tape and it stops. Yeah, and or if you want to skip forward a bit, you can rewind it or fast and, and forward the tape. And the way that it scrolls it it as well is it kind of scrolls across the screen. So as you're leaving one of the one of the comic book scenes, it scrolls across, and then the other one's loading in the kind of in a buffered style, and then it just comes in, you know, which adds this kind of consistency and this flow of reading it that's that's really nice. And he's thought of lots of little clever kind of hacks in there, so. He's not got any of the speech bubbles in comics because that's going to be quite hard with the kind of low definition that you're getting on the screen. I think it's about half the size of the screen, the actual definition of the picture, uh, the actual resolution that they can have it at. But he's got the subtitles in there. But the cool thing about that is when you do it, you can have two languages as well. Mm. So it's storing subtitles. You could have English and you could have Dutch or German or whatever. And then one comic suddenly becomes a thing for, for two audiences, which uh, I really like. And he's developed a, a really nice little program that, you know, I, I, I don't have a C64. I've never kind of got one working. But as a comic fan, I've got some favorite comics and I want to put them through this little program to create, you know, little tapes that people can then have that actually have the comic strips in. And the way that you put it in is you kind of have the tape length you create these scenes, but also it has a preview of what the image will look like on the C64. So you can play around with the contrast and oh, it's just it's just so geeky. I absolutely love it. And that's a really good thing that he's doing because he can actually download this strip stream software. It's hard to say that. Strip I think stream. I was saying slipstream um, earlier. So yeah, yeah I'm strip glad you... Strip stream, like comic strips, hype, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's a ready-to-run program file as well. There's also a couple of example projects um, in this tape image format that he's got on there. There's the editor program. There's even a manual that he's put together as well. And also instructions on uh, basically how people can put together their own tapes as well. Um, that they, you know, he actually shows a few in this video here that look like, you know, professionally printed cassette tapes with the inlay and everything as well. So, yeah, I mean, very niche, very geeky, but extremely cool. 
And looking at some of these as well, I mean, one cool thing is when it's loading, it actually tells you how many pages are in the comic. And uh, one of the examples in the video is actually 300 pages. Yeah. I'm not sure how your eyes would feel after reading a 300-page comic on a, a Commodore 64. Well, well, next, you need to get the voice synthesis to actually... Um do like yeah. a voiceover on top of it and then you could watch the images go by and have that that would be really cool and different tones for different characters like a high one a low one but maybe that would take up too much too much data i also love the fact that you can print it off even though you are degrading the quality massively and then you're kind of putting it through you know a dot matrix printer it's still like that's cool you know i could duplicate it you know you did have a Commodore 64 at one stage. Did did you get rid of it then? I gave up. I can't. The inter- I, I, I'm a GUI guy. I'm sorry. I'm a GUI guy. Maybe I should have put that new operating system on, on it. Or Geos. There's an old school yeah. GUI for the Commodore it's, it's 64. In the, um, it's in the cupboard, so maybe I should clean it off and get it out, you know. Well, this is a good excuse to get it loaded oh, up Oh, totally. Again. I would just fill it with Judge Dredd. That would be 2000 AD. <laughs> just be producing tap files for that. You know, it's amazing, isn't it, that nothing like this, because, you know, you see projects like this and you think that would have made a commercial product back in the day. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And like, I've seen stuff for for higher end stuff and this, you know, sometimes you see these proof of concepts and then you see something that actually works and is like a full kind of product. And this is like mm. a one man kind of product because it's so, it's so well thought out, the whole thing. Yeah, real passion project. So um, top work on that. If you want to download that, it is available now. And of course, I'll stick that in the show notes too. Now, this is very cool. Um, This is a new puzzle platformer game that's been in development for about eight years now that's finally come out this week on the PC. But it is very retro inspired. You know, the graphics on this look um, straight out of the mid kind of 1990s. This is a game called Moon of Darcelon. I'm so glad that you read that then because if I was try- I was talking to Dan about this before Slowly. we started recording and, and and I couldn't I couldn't say it. <laughs> so uh this looks really interesting. So um in terms of like a visualization I guess kind of like maybe like Abe's Odyssey in terms of the yeah. visuals, you know, it, it's 3D models mixed with pixel art and so, uh, so looks early so, PlayStation to me. To yeah. me it it, it looks it doesn't look PlayStation. To me, it looks like system freeze games that they did at one period. So like Constructor and this kind of, at least the 3D elements of it. It reminds uh, kind me. Of got that kind of comic-y rendered roundness of the, about of them. The, of the Silicon Knights kind of like, you know, you know, Killer Instinct as well. Donkey yes, Kong Country, yes, you know yeah. what Rare did. But then. Yeah, actually, it has got a bit of the kind of Silicon Graphics render silicon graphics, vibe yeah. as well, but also like bad PC pd yeah. games as well yeah <laughs> and, time, yeah, yeah. And, and obviously it's a very purposeful look and i think you know it, it really suits it and it's not a look you see very often so it's made by dr kuko games uh, which is a spanish developer and as you say that's been in development for eight years now and it's been completely solo developed by this one guy um dr kuko it's, which it's I think- kind of a mix of 3d and 2d as well like some mm, of the aspects yeah. of it are flat and then some of them are really rounded and rendered yeah, yeah, like I say, 3D models mixed with the pixel art. So, um, the, in terms of gameplay, at first, I, I the reason I say Abe's Odyssey is because I thought it was a you know like a you know that kind of style like command based because of the idea of it is you're an astronaut looking for your lost squad members and you you kind of shout you know go left go right you know directions at them like you do 
in Abe's Odyssey and you have to like, save like them. voice commands. Not uh, voice commands, I don't know. Uh, like, yeah, yeah, it has. Oh, is it um, voice commands, is it? Oh, wow, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's... it's <laughs> Is is saying voice commands to uh, control companion NPCs? Oh, okay. So you literally shout at them. Oh, okay, <laughs> that's that's really cool. So I was thinking, you know, like Abe's Odyssey, but then when you watch the trailer, it's a little bit more like Metal Slug meets Lemmings. Is the only way I can describe it. <laughs> that's a great description. You, you know, I think I think you're right, but I also think Broforce meets Worms. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a lot of worms in there visually. I was looking at that, and a lot of the levels remind me of worms. Yeah, and the yeah. way that there's this certain gun in there where you can build environments, so you can actually, which is well Earthworm Jimmy, like um, you can destroy it as well, but you can actually uh, like put soil sections down, and like block off certain areas or yeah. build ramps up. It's got an element of destructibility. Yeah, that that like you say, the gun that makes like bridges and stuff. That really reminded me of the bridge building lemming, but then you could shoot it away as well, and you know, and then it's you know there is loads of enemies and like little spaceships you can get in and stuff like that. And um, if you actually kind of read into it, it's actually a sequel to a game called Pilots um, of uh, is it Darcelon? Is it Darcelon? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well done. <laughs> it's actually a sequel to that game which was uh, a completely different... It's got a very similar art style, but it's a completely different game. It's, um, I forget the, kind of the genre, but it's, you know, when you when you pilot a spaceship, but you have to, like, kind of, like, land it. Um, there's a real... I can't remember what, it's, what the game it's based on from, like, the 80s. But, you know, when you have, like, a certain amount of fuel and you have to, like, really gently land the ship and stuff like that, it's a sequel mm. to, to, to one of them games. Um, so I think it's really interesting. It's kind of like you've landed the ship and now you've got to run around on this planet and you've got to save all your astronaut fan, friends, which I really like which, the idea which, of. Which kind of has the Pikmin kind of chaos. Yeah, it does. And they're just still yeah. running around, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's a hell of a lot of influence in this game from, you know, a lot of different genres as well. But yeah, I, I just love the way it looks and I think, you know, they've done a really good job of kind of staying faithful to that. Like I said, to me, it kind of reminds me of like very early PlayStation where you've got the, the 2D sprites and the 3D models and stuff in there too. Um there's also 8-bit music that's based on the SID chip from the Commodore 64. Oh, that's cool. In there as well, SID-style music, 8-bit um, speech synthesis as well. Um, although in other ways, it's got stuff like um, realistic liquid physics and uh, you know the, the vehicle physics look really good in it too. So it's kind of that, you know, bridges modern comforts and retro quite well, I think. Yeah, I like this. this. It's not like strictly recreating one genre. It's like a mashup mm. of all, everything. And... Yeah, that that's creating something new, which is which is really nice. Yeah, and there's a free demo that you can download from Steam if you want to try it out. And if you want to buy the full game, it's only um, £16.67. So um, not going to break the bank. Um, but yeah, it looks really good. It's nice to see, you know, we're, we always do our bit to try and support these indie games that are doing a really good job. So um, definitely worth getting on that and checking it out. Even download the free demo, give it a try this weekend. And if you like it, buy the full game. It looks really, really cool. Now, something that I do want to buy, and uh, I said to the lads before, I said, uh, you know, do you think anyone else would be interested in this? They said, no, probably not. But um, I thought I'd talk about it anyway. <laughs> this is <laughs> to, to get a, um, interested. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, because this is not going to happen unless people want it. Now, this is a ODE, an optical, what's that ODE stand for? Is that optical drive? Emulator. Enhanced or emulator? That's it, makes sense. So this is basically a, um, a flash solution to replace an optical drive. And we've seen these on other platforms as well. You know, we've seen it on the Sega Saturn got one recently, didn't it? You can get them for the uh, the PlayStation as well. Admittedly, this platform is um, slightly more niche. 
this is someone who wants to make one for the, the Philips CDI. Now, um, this is a guy called Felix, and he's done a few of these before, but basically, unless there's enough interest in there, he's not going to go ahead and make it. And it did make me kind of think, because, I mean, I was looking through randomly. I downloaded, like, a bunch of old gaming mags off archive.org the other day, and I've been playing around my um, CD32 this week, and it's remarkable to look at, you know, the amount of games that were promised on certain platforms that obviously weren't a success, like the CD32, and never got released. And there's a really cool dinosaur game, which I can't remember the title off at the top of my head now. And I was looking at screenshots of it thinking, oh, it would be awesome if that came out. And then I learned that it's, it actually did get a release on the Philips CDI. So I thought, oh, I have to get the CDI set up again. And it turns out mine's not reading discs anymore. Ah, uh, yes. So, um, this is ideal because these things are great for actually like kind of saving the original hardware. You know, if you've got yeah. an issue like that, it's going to be a bit of a nightmare to repair. Um, it's interesting seeing what he's kind of aimed for. So he's got an interest list here. And um, I don't know what the DVC slot is, but apparently you can extend it. So the SD card can be extended uh, via the DVC slot. So oh, that's a digital video cartridge slot. So yeah, there's an expansion slot on the back where you normally put an FMV card in there. Ah, so I guess you'll be able to slot it into the back. Uh, and they're saying, you know, there's going to be um, uh, a way of working with redump as well, which is a way of dumping your images. And, um, you know, it will have storage transfer in RAM as well and uh, micro SD supported as storage. So it sounds like quite a good project. Um, you know, it's fitting on this kind of area. It does say it will require soldering 11 yeah, to That's the thing, the, the, CDI doesn't, the CDI doesn't have a connector for the um, the optical drive. It's just soldered to the board. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So it doesn't mean you have to unsolder the old one and um, solder it on. But I mean, you know, from memory, they're only kind of like small little cables. You know, it shouldn't be that tricky. I think even I could probably do that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, but at the moment, he's basically, this is not pre-orders, but he's just wants to go, gauge the interest for it, really, to see if people want this. And if they do, then you'll get a notification when the product's available. So at the moment, there's a little um, Google Docs form that you can fill in um, if you've got a CDI and you want a new um, optical drive replacement. Because I'm looking around at my machines, you know, pretty much all of my retro machines. I mean, one or two of them have got old school hard disks in, but more of them these days have either EverDrives or flash carts or compact flash adapters. I mean, I pretty much use them in everything now. So, you know, these are available on loads of other platforms. And I remember for ages really wanting one for the, the Atari Jaguar. And, you know, the Crix and Mixi EverDrives was like, you know, there's not enough, not enough of a market there to bother doing it. Then obviously um, there was one made for it recently by RetroHQ. So I think, you know, it does seem now that, that all the mainstream platforms are covered in terms of SD card readers. So all that's left is these kind of, Weird, yeah, obscure formats that only like five or six people like. But I also guess like the CDI was a standard, right? So it's on, there were yeah. lots of different versions of the CDI as well. So in this form, he's got like, let me know your CDI that you're actually using. Because I guess it's going to be a bit of a harder job to get compatibility with all of the different versions of the CDI in there, as opposed to something like, you know, that's, that's very common that people are just doing one that, you know, fits all of them because they know what's in that device. So, I mean, if you have got a CDI, you know, lurking in the attic or maybe, you know, you regularly dig out your CDI to, you know, play Space Quest on it or uh, try and control Lemmings with that horrible remote control. Uh, the thing is, I just think all of these retro platforms should have something like this. Of course, I mean, as I found out, you know, optical drives don't last forever. I'm going to try cleaning mine and it might bring it back to life. But Loading times are better be as well. 
Well, that's the thing. And it's more stable and it's easier to get stuff on there as well. I mean, I don't know if you guys, you know, burnt a CD recently, but, you know, it just seemed to me like, you know, the, the actual CDs that you buy in places like Asda, you know, they do those little towers of like 50 discs. It feels like the quality of those is nowhere near do, as good as it used to be. Do you think if you asked a kid about burning a CD these days, they'd understand? You know? I saw very depressingly... Someone actually tweeted that um, a couple of months ago. I saw that pop up on my timeline. It was like, oh, can someone explain to me? You know, I'm, I'm 14. What does burning a CD make? How do you actually burn it? What's that mean? And I was like, God. You get a CD. To me, it still feels... You, you get a lighter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a lost art soon, so we need to replace these, uh, these old optical drives. So if you have any interest for it, you know, or you just think another system deserves an SD card reader. Um, there is a little form that I'll link up in the show notes as well. So you can check that out. And all the rest of the stories, you don't have to Google around. I'll put them all in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, it's Friday when the show comes out. And actually, um, I will post this on Patreon and uh, our socials beforehand as well, because Friday night, it's going to be party night with the boys tonight, isn't it? Party night on a Friday night. Trying it what? out. Yeah, we've got to try it out, yeah. aren't we? <laughs> so if you want to hang out with us, we normally do our patrons hang out on uh, the last Sunday of the month. But we know we keep an eye on Discord and we do have people contacting us on Twitter. And we've always done it on a Sunday. But I've seen a few messages of people saying, you know, yeah, Sundays don't work for me. I've got to work then or I've got family commitments as well. So I thought we'd try swapping it up a little bit and actually doing it on a Friday night instead. So um, we're going to be doing our monthly patrons hangout uh, today when the show comes out, Friday the 28th of April at 8 o'clock this evening, 8 p.m. till 10. I imagine being a Friday night, there might be a... Uh, a kind of to a cider by Joe's side, possibly, being a Friday. Possibly, possibly. Is it, yeah, is it before a bank holiday weekend as well? By wit. Uh, oh, there's definitely one coming. I think it might be next weekend. I was going to say, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> so many, I don't know what's going on these days. Well, the King's Coronation's a weekend after, but you know, we could treat it as a bit of a warm up. You know, a couple of bank holiday weekends in, in May. I'm sure we'll all be in the party mood. Uh, but if you haven't joined us for one before, basically, if your back is on Patreon, you get an invite to come to the Patrons Hangouts that we do once a month. Basically, just a massive Zoom call. Load of us get on, we geek out, sharp pickups. It's just a bit of fun, really, isn't it? And some helpful advice on there as well, though. I mean, we often get tips and stuff as well. So we all say it's a bit like a, a virtual users group. So if you uh, join us on Patreon this weekend, you'll get an invite to that. And um, that's coming up tonight. And uh, also, we're going to be recording our next episode of the Retro Hour After Hours. Now, this is a little bonus podcast that we do every single month. Yeah, it's it's really good fun. I, I kind of like the freedom of the Retro Hour After Hours because it's, it's like pick a subject and then we just get really in-depth on that. And you know, on the podcast, it's great. We have guests on and we talk about their kind of life and stuff. But it's it's good to delve into those certain subjects and just get really deep in it. And I, and I kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're all nerds here and we just really love, love kind of discussing it. And there's so many episodes now that if you sign up as a patron, you can get a huge kind of back catalogue of all of the After Hours episodes. Yeah, I think it's like 34 that you'll unlock if you join us this weekend. And the new episode we're going to be recording on Sunday is going to be about our favourite co-op games. And uh, Joe and I were talking about this the other day, and Joe said, you know, I'm not going to pick the usual ones. You know, Streets of Rage is not going to be in there. We're going to think a bit more outside the box, aren't we? Yeah, so we're going to go for our kind of like favourite co-op games. But I kind of had the realisation of a lot of the games I've covered in the After Hours are co-op games. 
and a lot of the games I've mentioned in my you know in my time on the retro hour you know my favorite games of all time and stuff like that a lot of them are co-op games so I'm going to think a little bit outside the box with my list you guys don't have to do this at all but I'm going to think and try and recommend some co-op games that some people might not have played too much or or heard of which are you know really really good kind of couch co-op um, experiences which is something we you know we don't get too often these days so I'm really really looking forward to recording that one did the supermarket co-op, did they sell games at any point? Maybe I could mention those. Yeah, Ravi's just going to do games that he bought in the co-op back in the day. I think you've misunderstood the brief a bit there. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you'd like to join us on Patreon, very good time to do it this weekend. And all the details to sign up are on our website at theretrohour.com. Right then, next, we're going to go inside the world of DMA design and acclaim with this week's very special guest. Neil Glancy is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest and I'm so excited to get some stories about legendary companies like DMA Design, Iguana Entertainment, Acclaim Studios, Midway as well with our special guest this week, Neil Glancy. How's it going, Neil? Good. How are you guys doing? Yeah, very good, thanks. And uh, thank you so much for taking a bit of time to reminisce with us on the podcast this week. Uh-huh. And um, before we get into, you know, some of the, these incredible titles that you've worked on in your career so far, just to kind of wind it right back to day one for a bit of context. I mean, what was your first gaming experience then? Do you remember what initially got you interested in video games in the first place? I think like many people of my generation, you know, back then it was the early, you know, coin up arcades, you know, playing Space Invaders and then, you know, the Atari 2600 console system, you know, having games that you could play at home on your TV and just as a child being sort of curious as to, these things are really fun, but how do they work? You know, how how could I make one, that kind of thing. So uh, you used a lot of tools such as like OCP Art Studio on like, you know, your early home systems uh, to make art projects. What kind of artwork were you creating? And do you have much of an artistic flair at school? Did you have much of an art background or did you just kind of fall into it with like computers and stuff? Um, I've always been very artistic and very interested in art. Mm. Um, A lot of the games projects that uh, I've been involved in throughout my career, I've involved a lot of creating a lot of illustrations and diagrams and things. But uh, yes, as you're correct, I used uh, OCPR Studio in some of the early works. Uh, those were mainly things focusing on Spectrum titles mm. and then later uh, Atari ST and Amiga um, with things like Deluxe Paint as well. But initially, I spent several years working with the tools, just doing experiments, mm. trying to understand you know, what the tools could do, what they couldn't do. There was really a major sort of generational shift in what could be done with the tools from the Spectrum to, you know, the Atari ST and Amiga. The, with the Atari ST and Amiga, you could, the pixels could be discrete colors, mm. you know, whereas with the Spectrum, because it used kind of color cells that bled into other kind of color cells, you were very limited in how you could embed color into a sprite. But I spent uh, many years just trying to kind of understand how the tools worked and kind of generally initially trying to kind of mimic nature, you know, looking at things like water effects or the behavior movement of, say, wheat in a field when it's being blown. And how could you kind of capture all of that movement with all those kind of fibers and threads moving at once? And there were certain sort of animation brush techniques you could use to kind of mimic very complex behaviors like that. And then uh, 
I would usually also try to kind of mimic things I was seeing in the gaming world, you know, mm. in the coin-op industry in terms of creating sprites that had um, lots of pack detail in them and, you know, shadow information, um, possibly some lighting information, you know, things of that sort. Well, when it got to the, you know, mid to late 80s, you started sending out your work to studios to find employment. So who were you kind of sending them to then? Were you just basically sending floppy disks out in the post and obviously you got involved with Rainbird as well. Kind of tell us a story there. Yeah, uh, and it's funny to think that that's kind of the way it works, but it, but but it did work like that. You know, it did involve going to the post office with a floppy disk and you know putting it in a putting it in a Ziploc bag and crossing your fingers that it would get get there in one piece. Different time, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, I mean, so totally pre-internet at the time. Um, in the back of fan magazines, uh, there would be adverts from um, game developers, publishers seeking talent. So I basically just, you know, replied to a few of these ads and put my portfolio on a disc um, and sent it to them. And I was like, well, you know, maybe you'll hear something back, you know, maybe not, who knows, who can say. And, um, you know, weeks and weeks would pass. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, Rainbird, uh, who were one of the groups that I'd sent work to, reached out to me and they were like, hey, we got your disc. You know, we really like what we're seeing on this disc. Um, we'd like to pair you with a programmer who's working on a project that's fairly far along, but he needs, you know, a whole suite of graphics for this project in terms of character designs and animations, as well as environmental assets, you know, because back then levels uh, were made of little sprite mosaic tiles, you know, so you kind of laid these tiles down to build a level out, kind of like a mosaic. So um, all of those pieces for the game had to be created as well. So did that lead to you joining DMA Design in 1990 or was there kind of like a like a few years period where you were kind of like working for yourself, working for Rainbird? What's the story there and how did you end up at DMA? Yes, a little bit of the latter. Um, I worked sort of for myself mm. and for Rainbird um, on a few different projects. Having worked on the first one of the first projects with them, which was a game called First Contact for the Amiga, it was almost the world's first uh, real-time strategy game. I think it was uh, the second one ever to be made. We were just put to the post by Herzog's Eye from <laughs> the Genesis. But uh, once I'd done that work on that project, there was other things that Rainbird needed for other games. So they're like, hey, can you help out on this other game over here? Or do this thing on this other game over here? And some of those deals were attractive and interesting, and some of the deals were not particularly mm. attractive or interesting from a financial standpoint, or they were conversions, you know, they were like, hey, instead of, you know, making graphics from this game, can you convert the graphics from this game to the Spectrum, for example, which was less interesting work to me because, you know, obviously you're not being creative there, you're just kind of, you know, porting something that someone else has made. But to get to your question about DMA, at the time I was also working at a computer shop in Edinburgh, which sold computers and video games, Um, and I would do graphics kind of in my evenings. And um, one of the customers that came into the shop was this chap called um, Ian Dunlop. And Ian was the lead programmer on Walker at DMA. And, uh, you know, we just kind of got to chatting when he was in the store one day. He would usually come in to to buy games and things. We'd be chatting about them. And um, he was talking about the work he was doing on Walker. And I was telling him that I was kind of in between assignments uh, for Rainbird. And he's like, well, you know, hey, maybe we could, you know, work together in some way shape or form and uh and i was like yeah that'd be great because it, this is a good point a good time for me i'm kind of in between things so he showed me some of the early work he'd done walker and 
it was pretty clear to me that uh, there was a lot that could be done there that wasn't being done. Mm. So um, I went away and spent the next, I don't know, maybe four or five months working on a complete, a total set of kind of replacement graphics. Yeah. So kind of um, one entire set of background graphics, completely overhauled new character graphics, um, all new particle effects, you know, in terms of explosions and um, bullet impacts and, you know, blood and gore effects and, you know, things like that. Um, and then uh, gave them back to Ian and he spent, I guess, a couple of weeks putting them in the game and um, he was super happy with uh, what I delivered and then I think he was due to go up to Dundee to speak to Dave Jones uh, to show him a milestone or something and he took that build up with him to to show DME his progress and uh, also these new graphics and um, they were pretty blown away with uh, the changes um, and so Dave Jones um, reached out and he's like hey you know we should meet we should talk um, you know this is some really compelling work um, you know would you be willing to relocate to Dundee and so that's kind of how all that uh, ball of wax got started. Well Walker had some really impressive graphics for the time you know I was a massive fan of that game when it came out I mean what was kind of your inspiration for the the art style of Walker then? That's a great question um at the time, I would say probably the strongest inspiration for the art was um, Akira, the sort of seminal Japanese yeah. anime um, set in Tokyo with, you know, uh, Tetsuo and Kaneda and all these people. Some of the characteristics of that work, obviously, were that it was incredibly detailed. Um, it had extremely detailed observations around light and shadow. There's a lot of scenes in Akira which have, you know, really beautiful light and shadow work. And... That was one of the things that I really wanted to kind of achieve in Walker was a next generation level of lighting. Uh, unfortunately, none of that work is actually in the retail product. So uh, none of the work that, or very little of the work that I did for Walker actually um, shipped in the game, and uh, which is another kind of bizarre story. Uh, and the reason for that is that um, although uh, David Jones I was very much a fan of the work that I had done for Walker and that Ian had integrated into the game. The game was very far along in production. They had an art team up in Dundee who'd been working on the game for quite some time. I believe maybe almost a year. And Dave's uh, take on it was, we can't put your stuff in the game because it's a completely different level of quality than the stuff we have for all the other levels in the game. So therefore, you know, we just have to kind of stick with what we have that's already been built in Dundee. And, uh, you know, if you can try and uh, work with the team to um, add some of that polish and some of those concepts and ideas into the work that already exists, then that would be great. You know, we'll make it slightly better, but we can't tear it all out and put all this new stuff in. So it was a bit disappointing mm. um, because the work that uh, I'd done for the title was... You just didn't see work like this in sprites at the time. You know, I was doing things like motion blur and, you know, that all has to be cooked into the animation and lighting so that when, you know, when a character, one of the tiny characters would run around the world uh, and I'd made the characters um, a little bit larger than they appeared in the shipping game so that I could get a lot more motion fidelity on their, their running cycles and, you know, weapons and things. And, you know, so when an enemy would run around the world and fire a weapon, for one frame, you would see this big muzzle flash. 
But then you would also see the muzzle flash on the character because it would flash and eliminate their body and mm. clothing and so on. And it would also create kind of a back shadow. So the kind of bright flash at the front of the character where the muzzle flash was would create a very stark shadow behind the character for that frame that the muzzle flash illuminated. So it really kind of attached the characters to the terrain in yeah. a very physicalized kind of way, um, which made them seem like they were really kind of part of this uh, scene. You know, and then you would you could see the characters even performing fine details like, you know, cracking a gun open, ejecting a shell, you know, loading a new shell into the breach, loading closing the breach, you know, all these kind of things that made them a little bit more interesting too. Do you still have any of those original graphics? It would be fascinating know, to see how that looked. You know, I I, I think so. <laughs> I have a box. Uh, I have a box archive from uh, my parents' house in Scotland, which contains, I guess, I don't know, maybe a hundred three point five inch floppy disks, and it's basically an archive I did before I left Scotland. Um, of all of the work uh, that I'd done, so it's probably in there somehow. But <laughs> I don't. I don't have an Amiga anymore, so. <laughs> Well, I've got, I've got one next to me if you need a hand. <laughs> we could ship them to you and see if you could uh, revive uh, revive them. But yeah, um, definitely up for that. Yeah, I mean, I went on with DMA to uh, to do a lot of very specialised work for DMA. Dave Jones was very interested in um, trying to see if they could kind of bring graphical work that was being generated in Dundee up to some of the emerging standards that were coming out of Signosis at the time. Mm. And um, I'm sure, sure, where you know, Signosis was, you know, synonymous with being the, the best people at creating graphics on the Amiga and the Atari and such. Um, and they were using a lot of advanced technology to do that, you know, silicon graphics workstations and and so on. So it was interesting to um, try to create some of these next generation effects for some of that test work for DMA. I did a lot of uh, rotoscoping work, um, you know, combining bitmap animation backgrounds with kind of rotoscope characters so you had very fine character motion uh, again with kind of an Akira-like feel you know in terms of light and shadow and kind of uh, observation of the characters costumes and so on. One thing about Walker I, I thought was very unique is the control scheme of it as well yeah. if I remember you actually used the the joystick and the mouse together to play the game so how, how did the team settle on this and was there kind of any doubt that that would work and confuse players you could use the joystick and mouse essentially it was just um sort of you know walk left and right um and you could use the mouse to control the walker's head and uh, one of the things that was very unique about it at the time was that the fact that the walker's head could turn and move and look in 3d um, so you could kind of move the mouse, which controlled the cursor that the walker's head was aiming at, anywhere in the play shield. So you could kind of aim in or out, left or right, um, and then you could push the, push the mouse button to fire. And then the walker's head would look at the appropriate position, you know, in that aim grid, if you will, to um, to then shoot the target appropriately. But uh, it was very novel at the time because... True three-dimensional graphics were very much an emerging thing and they were not something that was greatly accessible to home computer users at the time. And I believe it was Scott Johnson who actually encoded and programmed a three-dimensional model of the walker's head. Um, so he basically created the model of the walker's head completely you know, as a set of three-dimensional points. Uh, they were not authored in a, a program, you know, like um, 3D Studio Max or something like that. 
Um, and then he created a program, a script that basically rotated the head and rendered it at various different aim grid angles and then outputted that image as a bitmap. And this was very um, cutting edge work at the time. And that was really kind of the basis of Walker was, you know, hey, we have this kind of really cool Walker head thing looking around in 3D. What could we do with that? You know, how could we make that a game? And that was really kind of the origin of Walker. So you were you actually led development on Walker 2, but it was cancelled after about a year of production. What's the story be there? Yeah. And uh, how far along was the production of the game? Yes, I did uh, lead that production. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, we grew the team. Um, we added a lot of people. At the time, uh, our, att- our attention was sort of divided between trying to figure out, you know, the, the Sega Genesis was becoming really big at that time. Yeah. And um, we were like, you know, how can we... There was a lot of interest in porting Walker to the Sega Genesis, but it wasn't really something that was going to be particularly easy to do because Walker really relied on people having a mouse to play the game. Yeah. And um, the Sega just had the gamepad. So, you know, Ian Dunlop um, sort of messed around with that for a few months to see if we could kind of get something to work, but it just wasn't really working very well. While he was doing that, I was kind of ideating on, you know, what could Walker 2 look like? What would some of the features of the game be? There was a lot of areas of Walker's design that I was unhappy with um, in the sense of... I thought the experience got very monotonous very quickly. Mm. You know, I would have liked to have seen more in the way of things like power-ups or more interesting enemies, you know, to fight. So those were things that I was very keen to solve for in um, Walker 2, and I spent a a good deal of time with uh, Ian working on ideas to make the the enemies much more engaging and interesting to encounter and to, to take down. Um, new sort of mechanical enemies. Uh, we also wanted to kind of have new kinds of uh, boss battles. There was a lot of talk also at the time about using the newly emerging 3DO platform at the time, which was a big deal, yeah. um, especially because the 3DO platform had uh, a compact disc. So there was a lot of room to store data there. So the early thinking was maybe we could as opposed to creating Walker's backgrounds from a series of parallaxing bitmaps, maybe we could uh, create the uh, backgrounds as the 3D Studio Max uh, models uh, and then have a camera rig um, moving on a dolly across the model scene you know, to create the parallax movie output. So we would basically cook off the Walker's progression walking through the level as a movie um, you know, using 3D Studio Max, and because we would be cooking off that background, be rendered in real time, which would mean that we could then um, produce backgrounds that had far more detail than was previously possible. So, why did the game end up getting cancelled then? The game ended up getting cancelled um, largely because I left the company. I, I left the company at that time to come to America. I had met a woman at that time, who uh, I wanted to continue a relationship. She was an American lady, and um, she'd gone back to the States, and I wanted to continue that relationship. So um, I put my pencils down at DMA and traveled to America, and I have been there ever since. 
It would have been interesting to see what you would have done with the sequel. If I remember correctly, wasn't there some kind of platform sections that were cut from the original game? I remember seeing reviews at the time that there was a, a bit more in there that had to be taken out. Yeah. Yeah, the platform things were interesting. Um, they were kind of a very, very late slash 11th hour um, ad by Ian to diversify the game experience. So, um, again, there was a feeling that although Walker you know, was interesting and had some interesting ideas inside of the product, that there wasn't enough diversity and variety. So Ian had um, come up with this kind of little platforming game idea that maybe at the end of a level of Walker, you could get out of the Walker, maybe enter some kind of bunker and engage in some sabotage activities or what have you. But uh, it was kind of a little bit too little too late. You know, um, it's a classic game development problem, right? You know, you're trying to add a feature late in development and unfortunately you have to come to the realization at a certain point that there's too much work that remains and not enough time you know so it's like you know what much as we would love to get this in the game to add more variety we just don't have time to finish this mode and make it good mm. you know so it, it just can't go in the game and those are painful decisions when you have to make them you know? yeah especially back then because we didn't really know better right <laughs> we were you know we were kind of teenagers you know in our early sort of 20s and you know, there wasn't really a lot of books for people who who could tell us how to do these things. You know, you were very much figuring out out on your own. Yeah, I can imagine. So, you mentioned uh, we were going to transition transition into your time at Iguana. So, obviously, you mentioned you, you you know you moved with your partner to the United States. What's the story in terms of landing yes. your project manager role then, at Iguana Entertainment? So, you know, was that a very similar experience to how you kind of got in with DMA? Were you looking in papers and stuff, or was it kind of like did you set it up prior? No, it was a very similar experience in that, uh, you know, again, looking in the back of gaming publications, gaming magazines, Mm. there would be adverts, you know, for, hey, we need such and such. So again, I sent off a disc with examples of work. Um, I was contacted by Jeff Spangenberg, who at that time was the president of uh, Iguana Entertainment in California. They were, you know, excited to talk to me because, you know, I'd worked at DMA Design. I had several published titles, you know, under my belt at that time. Um, they were in the process of moving their business from California to Austin, Texas. So he was curious as to whether um, I would be interested in joining the company and uh, joining them in Texas. Being from Scotland at the time, I was like, wow, you know, Texas isn't that the place with, you know, tumbleweeds blowing by and lots of cactuses. You know, you have these sort of stereotypical visions of, you know, what that might mean, <laughs> which which were mostly wrong, I might have. <laughs> um, so uh, I um, initially flew to Massachusetts, uh, which is where my girlfriend at the time lived. We packed up her apartment into a U-Haul van and drove it down to Austin, Texas. And um, I took the job uh, at Iguana. Um Initially, the job was uh, kind of a project manager title, which is basically in modern terms, would be a game director role. Um, you know, lots of companies had lots of different names for those kinds of roles back in the day. But, you know, you were basically the person who was in charge of the project, uh, including scheduling. I mean, it's crazy to think of all the different responsibilities you had back then, but also responsible for, you know, obviously the graphics, art direction, assembling levels, working with the programmers to code features, enemy behaviors, you know, player character behaviors, things like that. So how did you find the the culture differed? I mean, coming from, you know, Dundee to Texas, I mean, you know, that, that must have been quite the change. And was there a 
a different feel and vibe at Iguana compared to DMA? How did the how did the experience differ? The, the main difference is kind of just being a Texas warrior. <laughs> Skull over a god, it's so hot here. <laughs> you know, <there's, laughs> yeah. it can easily get up to 110 degrees. So, you know, extremely hot. But in terms of culture, um, I think the main difference would be Iguana's culture was certainly more focused around pro- productivity, you know, and getting things done on schedules. There was only a certain amount of time that we, that projects were financed through, you know, so we had to kind of, you know, deliver products on time and on schedule. Whereas um, at DMA Design, there was a little bit more uh, leeway around timing. You know, you had a little bit more time to kind of fiddle with things, uh, which was both a good and a bad thing, right? It, it's good in the sense that everyone likes to tinker and deliver their best work. But the downside was that sometimes, you know, tinkering could go on probably objectively a bit too long, you know, sometimes maybe to the detriment of the product. So um, coming to Iguana was, I wouldn't say a shock, but, uh, you know, there were certainly more uh, onus. You know, this is a company, we make products, you know, we have to deliver on time. So there was more of an emphasis on getting things done, you know, in a reliable, predictable way. Mm. Uh, Whereas at DMA, things were a little bit more relaxed. So your first game at Iguana was Zero the Kamikaze Squirrel, which was actually a Sunsoft IP. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that was a sequel to Era the Acrobat or a spiritual successful successor. But how involved were you in its kind of like design and art or was it like Sunsoft have said this is how it needs to be? That's a good question. Um, it was a very interesting situation. So David Siller was the creator of um, Zero the Kamikaze Squirrel. His son, in fact, was the, the creator of that character. And David, I believe, had uh, created Hero the Acrobat. So we basically had a producer at Sunsoft who was David Siller, whose son was very interested in video games, who had created these characters, and they wanted to um, make this Zero the Kamikaze Squirrel game. So I was basically given a a bunch of illustrations Mm -hmm. uh, by David's son as to what this character, you know, might look like. Uh, There was a very simple sort of half-page sort of story synopsis it was all a bit sort of loosey-goosey um, because, you know, his son was just a child at the time. Um, and kind of I was asked to kind of synergize and synthesize this into like, okay, you know, create a game proposal. So um, with, you know, you know, a couple of drawings of these characters and a loose story synopsis, I went away and crafted a design specification, a proposal, um, you know, as to, okay, you know, here's how this story connects together in a series of levels. You know, here are the enemies, here are, the, here are their behaviours, here is the behaviour of the Zeo character, here's the different moves he can do, you know, here's some of the things that, the aspects of how he moves that make him an interesting and unique character, you know, at that year in gaming. Well, he also did design work on the 32-bit version of Batman Forever, and um, that version's very different to the 16-bit games. Yeah. And actually, you know, a lot of people regard that as a bit of a hidden gem, actually. Uh-huh. So give us a bit of background on that on that version. Yeah, of that was a really interesting project. Um, a few years after working on um, Zero and, you know, a few other uh, Sega Genesis NES products, Jeff Spangenberg uh, came through to me one day and he's like, um, hey, uh, you know, do you like Batman? And uh, I'm like, I'm like, who doesn't like Batman? <laughs> like, yeah, of course I like Batman. Uh, he's mm. like, he's like, well, we might be able to do a Batman game. Would you be interested in working on that? And I was like, hell yeah. So um, this was a very exciting prospect. And 
at the time, a claim was interesting in kind of divesting their interests from home games, which might be original titles, but also might be ports, right? So, you know, they did things like ports of NBA Jam. Yeah. So they were very curious with like, you know, how can we make arcade games ourselves, which we will then own, which will then make it easier for us to make proprietary ports. And they wanted to make this um, Batman Forever coin-op game, which was using somewhat experimental Sega hardware called the Sega Titan arcade system, which was basically a very powerful Sega Saturn. And this was all before the Sega Saturn had reached the marketplace. Consumers didn't know about it. So um, it was kind of like a a beefed-up Sega Saturn, which also had a proprietary soundboard on it, so it could produce very, very high-fidelity audio. And it was a really interesting project because we were given early versions of the script of the film, um, and I was given a lot of concept art from Warner Brothers to, to try to create a game proposal with, but the game, the movie was still in development at the time and it was there was a lot of changes going on with the movie. So the tricky part was we would find that by the time we'd created a specification for the game, you know, which would kind of call out, okay, here's the different levels, the different characters and situations. Um, we would get a revised script from Warner Brothers, and it's like, oh, the, the movie's completely changed. <laughs> now, now we need, now we need to now we need to totally change. You know, this level in the game is gone. This character doesn't exist. You know, so we'd have to kind of do major brain surgery. Yeah, on our pitch to kind of get it working again. But it was interesting because uh, we where we ended up was creating a kind of Streets of Rage kind of game, mm. like a side scrolling kind of beat them up, um, but we wanted to incorporate advanced fighting mechanics, the similar mechanics to what you would see in things like Killer Instinct. And we also wanted to have kind of a next generation of um, graphical fidelity. So uh, it's interesting how this is actually a callback to the Walker 2 thing. So we, we did use 3D Studio Max to create these extremely detailed three-dimensional uh, backgrounds that we then cooked off has bitmap images um, so that the backgrounds to the game, you know, had really nice kind of truly calculated shadows and reflections and lighting effects and things like that. And doing that level of work that time in the industry back then, it was very difficult because um, we were really pushing these machines, these PCs to their limits. They would often crash. I think we had one explode one time um, because, you know, (laughs) They were really kind of being pushed to their limits in terms of rendering and memory constraints. Um, and then we also had um, the characters in the game um, were modeled by Cyrus Lum, who was a, a very well-known uh, sort of personality in gaming at the time, who was very expert in creating three-dimensional characters on SGI workstations. So he created Batman and Robin and all of the enemy characters as well as uh, another team of artists that we had that made these characters on these SGI workstations. And then they would kind of animate the characters and then cook those animations off and bring them over to the Sega Titan hardware. So uh, let's talk about the legendary South Park games that you worked on. Were you a fan of the show when the deal was made with Iguana, when it kind of like landed on your desk? Yes. um, I don't think anyone wasn't a fan of the show back then because it was so new. The only thing that people had really seen of it was the sort of bootleg cartoon, The Spirit of Christmas, which was the kind of leaked uh, cartoon where um, Santa beat up Jesus and, you know, it was all very controversial and hilarious at the time. 
And um, so everyone was, you know, at uh, acclaim at the time was just like, oh my God, what is this thing? It's hilarious, you know. Um, and um, the senior executives of the claim were quite savvy as it came to uh, sort of emerging brands, if you will, and they saw this um, cartoon and they were like, mm, you know, there's, there's probably, probably some money that could be made out of this. So they approached uh, Casabonita, you know, uh, I should say Matt and Trey at the time to sort of buy their rights to, to you know, use the South Park characters for entertainment products. Initially, um, that came in the form of a PC screensaver pack. It was the quickest thing they could get to market. It was just like, hey, here's some animated interactive desktops with, you know, South Park-like, you know, elements. And they got that to market very quickly because it was a very technologically shallow, you know, easy to implement uh, product. And then from there, they were interested in making games. So, uh, you know, at that point, um, Jeff spoke to me, you know, and he's like, hey, we've got the South Park thing, you know, um, would you be interested in working on the South Park game? And I was like, hell yeah, this sounds great. Um, the, the major challenge, though, was they wanted the product for Christmas of that year. And I think we were having that conversation in maybe March, early April, which meant that we only had months, basically, to you know, design, build and execute and deliver the product. Which was insane, right? You know, doing anything in such a short time is just incredibly yeah. difficult. <laughs> so we, you know, we looked at kind of what we had. And at that time, we only really had the Turok engine, which was a first-person shooter engine. Turok obviously being the game where you run around shooting dinosaurs, which was a big deal on the Nintendo 64. So we were like, okay, well, it's going to have to be a first-person shooter of some sort. We looked at the reference material because the show had started to air on Comedy Central at that time. I believe they, there were maybe three or four episodes in. Um, there was not a lot of episodes for us to refer to. But there was this one episode uh, in the early season where the kids went hunting with their Uncle Jimbo. And it was like, you know, oh, look, it's a beer. It's coming right at me. Blam. You know, we're like, okay, well, the kids, you know, um, with they, we, can be, we can see them in the show here with, you know, guns and things like that. So having them running around with guns should be fine. And until we were running this stuff up the flagpole with Comedy Central and uh, Casa Bonita, which was the the studio name for uh, the South Park studio. Everyone was happy at that time. And then uh, Columbine happened. And when Columbine happened, uh, everyone was obviously completely stunned and shocked. But um, there came down word from Comedy Central that they're like, hey, we cannot have a game with children with guns in it and and we were obviously we understood you know this but we were like well what do we do now <laughs> because you know we have a first person engine well i mean yeah. you know we don't we don't have a lot of room to maneuver here and i remember talking to the team and my leads at the time and being like shit we are really in a tight spot here you know um <laughs> set creativity knob to maximum you know how are we going to get out of this uh, problem so um, we thought about it for uh, some time and basically this idea was floated that, well, instead of having the kids, you know, holding different guns and actual weapon weapons, maybe we could have them hold sort of cheeky toy-like equivalents, you know. So instead of having a pistol, you know, we could have a character holding a snowball and, you know, ins instead of the secondary fire and a pistol being, you know, burst shot, for example, the secondary fire on the snowball could be 
a yellow snowball, you know, that does more damage. Um, you know, or we could have things like, you know, Terence and Philip uh, fart dolls, which are essentially grenades. You know, you sort of throw them in the world, they explode in a cloud of fart gas, but they're still a grenade, they're area of effect damaging. So we basically um, substituted all of the different weapons uh, that we had in the design with kind of toy equivalents. And then I went back to a Comedy Central to meet with them in New York and um, to meet with Matt and Trey in uh, LA. And I had to pitch them, you know, like, here's here's how we think we're going to fix this and move forward. You know, what do you guys think? And uh, very fortunately for us, uh, Comedy Central and um, Casa Bonita were all super happy um, with the workaround. They're like, this is really a great workaround. You know, um, let's just continue to move forward. So we had to scramble to continue the production of the game. It was an incredibly challenging project to deliver because of the short timeline. I believe we had about nine months to make the game. And back then, you know, cartridges were burned in Japan. So, you know, it's not like, oh, we finished the game, put it on Steam. You know, like none of that stuff existed. So, you know, you had to like (laughs) send the code to Nintendo. It had to be validated and, you know, quality assured. And then that code had to be sent to Japan where it was burned onto ROMs. And then they had to be loaded onto ships and those ships had to cross the ocean. So um, there was a lot of pressure to, to get that stuff done. And Matt and Trey were also v- very involved in, uh, at that time, towards the late stage production of the game uh, in uh, South Park, the movie. So, you know, I would be sitting in Austin writing the script, all the dialogue for um, the video for the South Park game, the first one. And then I had to kind of beg them to uh, give us some studio time to, to do all the voices, you know, so that they could provide all the voices of the characters for all the lines we needed it in the game because the game had a lot of dialogue in it for a cartridge product I mean a huge amount of dialogue and that was very difficult to get them scheduled with their commitments for the movie and the TV show as well but we did manage to do it so um, the team it's uh, to claim it's definitely one of the teams I'm most proud to have worked with because that project was very very challenging for many different reasons and the team uh, you know yeah, granted the game is not the most complex game in the world but the team still did an amazing job, you know, uh, given the time they had. And, and the amount of game there is in the game, there's many levels, many different characters. There's even a multiplayer part of the game where you can play split screen. Um, you know, so there was a lot of value there for fans. Yeah, and I mean, obviously a massive franchise, South Park. Well, yeah. I mean, it was, a, you know, the biggest thing in the world then, you know, when it, when it first came out. Um, yeah. I remember first watching it on TV, like, what the hell is this? And then yeah, after totally. a couple of episodes, so you're like, oh my God, this is the funniest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. So having a game of it was incredible. And I mean, it was on several different platforms when, you know, PlayStation, you mm-hmm. had the uh, the PC version deeply impacted. And it sounds like N64 yeah. then was that kind of the, the primary platform. So I know um, that's generally regarded as like the best, the best version, version of it on there, But it was it? certainly the primary skew. It was only after we'd shipped on N64 that, yeah. uh, you know, our attention then turned to porting it to PC and such. I'm sure back then the PC folks were, you know, like, yeah, but it runs better on our rigs, you know, because <laughs> they had graphics cards and things like that, you know. They always uh, do. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it was initially for the Nintendo 64. So um, you also worked on Chef's Love Shack as well, which is a, a bit of a lesser-known title maybe in the UK. Um, tell us a bit about um, that then and what, what you worked on on that game. So the... The subsequent South Park projects, um, Chef's Love Shack, South Park Rally, I'm trying to remember if there was another one. Um, basically, um, I served as kind of a, an executive producer on those titles, so I wasn't really 
involved in the design of those products. Um, we had a team in Austin, um, Chef's Lab Shack was uh, designed and project uh, driven by Jules Watson. And the Rally product, I believe, was made in Australia. And my involvement in those games was to basically act as a consistent liaison between Iguana Entertainment, Comedy Central in New York, and Casa Bonita in LA. Because I'd basically developed a relationship with um, the folks at those two different companies that we had to work with. And at the end of um, Deeply Impacted, Larry Lieberman at um, Comedy Central and the folks at Casa Bonita said, hey, you know, can you just stay on, even though you're not actually making these games, can you stay on as our kind of point person to lease with, you know, on these projects? So I would work with uh, Jules and the other teams, you know, to present the work in progress uh, of these titles to Comedy Central and um, uh, Casa Bonita, you know, to get feedback from them as to, you know, what they were seeing, what they liked and didn't like in the games, where they wanted to see changes and so on. One of the great things there was that uh, Matt and Trey uh, were very avid gamers themselves, you know, so that that made it much easier to have conversations around gaming features because, you know, they could cite precedent or comparative analysis of, hey, could we do it like this game, you know? So that was very, very helpful. So... Obviously, with uh, South Park Rally, um, I say obviously, Matt, Matt and Trey have kind of criticised the concept of the game before. Um, and sometimes they kind of go on record to say, like, with the newer South Park games, they look back at mistakes that were made with the old games and decisions they made with the old games. But then in other interviews, they say they had nothing to do with those games. So how hands-on were they really with it? Like, you know, with kind of like the, the well, demos of the game and the prototypes and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um... They they weren't really particularly hands on with those works. They did they did see those works on several occasions um, because I would have to present those works to them for feedback. But um, there was an acknowledgement and an understanding, I think, within acclaim at that time that um, especially the rally game that there was something just not quite right about the product. You know that although the idea of obviously you know people knew what Mario Kart was back then and it was a successful franchise. So, you know, you would think that, um, hey, having the kids in carts, you know, doing races or in tracks is is a slam dunk, right? You know, but one of the things that I believe was odd about the rally game was this idea that um, the folks who were designing it had that the track would contain branches within the track, which could then contain shortcuts. Um, which could lead people to kind of developing different routes around the track to get a better lap time. And this is an, an interesting concept, but um, it didn't really play out too well in the game because uh, people would race around the, the tracks and sort of be a bit confused as to, well, should I be going left, right or center here? And because different um, players were going in different branched paths, it meant you saw each other less which meant the sense of rivalry was weaker because you didn't see, you know, you weren't always kind of chasing the pack in the pack or leading the pack. Um, so there was a number of rather odd design decisions made in the, the rally game that made it a bit of an odd fish. And um, it was something that, that I had concerns with, but that, you know, my job at that time was not to, um, I suppose, interfere with that as much as to just, you know, Show Matt and Trey and Comedy Central the works in progress 
talk to them about what changes could be made and gather their feedback. So I do feel for uh, Matt and Trey on that one that the game was not, I don't think, of you know sufficient quality to attach the brand to. Um, so I understand you know why they would be upset with that one. Well, I mean, as well as making the South Park games, you're also senior designer on um, you know, some of the Turok games as well. So how did you manage to juggle so many projects at once then? You must have been kind of spinning a lot of plates at that time. Um, sometimes. I mean, it would kind of, my time would be sort of divided, right? So, you know, um, a certain amount of my time would be involved with communicating with um, Comedy Central and Casa Bonita via conventional methods, you know, via email, telephone, things like that. And then some of the time, you know, you had to kind of get on the plane. So, you know, usually once a month, um, sometimes once every six weeks, I would get on the plane and fly to New York, meet with Larry and Comedy Central people, then fly over to LA, meet with uh, Matt and Trey, and then come back to Austin and give the team any direction, uh, you know, or, or, you know, any sort of findings from those sessions. And then in between, you know, doing that, I would still have, you know, about half of my week left, right? So um, that would be time that I could um, help on other projects. So for example, one of the projects that I was juggling at that time was uh, Turok Rage Wars, uh, which was being led mm. by Mark Pacini. Um, Mark would later on um, leave uh, Acclaim and uh, go to work on Metroid Prime, which I'm sure you guys have heard of. Great game. So uh, Mark was leading um, Turok Rage Wars, and um, I was helping him with that project in terms of just generally kind of helping him with bits and pieces of project management, but also building some levels, right? So I would go into the editor and, you know, build some levels, you know, because it was a kind of a multiplayer focused game. So we wanted to cram as many levels in there as we could. So really just, you know, keeping busy, you know, between sort of project management stuff, helping new project managers spin up, and contributing content, you know, where needed. I mean, obviously you've done a lot in your career, Neil, and kind of moving a bit more towards, you know, the modern time. I know one project that you're particularly proud of, and um, you should be as well, because it's a really, really impressive title, and I know was up for award nominations as well, was um, the virtual reality game, Torn, that you worked on in, in 2018. So kind of moving a bit more towards the you know, recent years, tell us kind of the story behind that game then, and kind of how your career led to that. Yeah, that's an interest. Gosh, there's a lot to cover between Nintendo 64 and that. I don't think I, don't yeah. think I can, I don't think I can <laughs> cover that gap quickly. Um, but Torn, Torn was a very interesting product um, in that it was, uh, uh, it was entirely a new IP. Um, we had a fixed budget of around about a million dollars, which is not a lot of money to make a game with. Um, and we had a very small team of around about five people. So the question was, you know, what can we do? That's compelling with such a small team, you know, um, in a relatively small amount of time. And at that time, when looking at the virtual reality marketplace, and this was, you know, very much when VR was just beginning to kind of blow up a bit, there was a sense from, you know, developers as well as early consumers <clears throat> that VR was interesting and uh, we, you could do some interesting things with it, but that a lot of the experiences that um, people were seeing were very kind of shallow. You know, they were almost like tech demos. You know, like, hey, you know, there's a bunch of aliens flying around. You can shoot them, you know, or here's a kind of, you know, uh, ping pong derivative or, you know, other things like that, you know. And there was interest in how could, you know, or, or could people make a, a virtual reality game that had a little bit more substance? And so this was something that we kind of um, looked at as possibly an opportunity to like, you know, 
could we make a virtual reality game that uh, had a little bit more sort of qualitative substance, was set in an interesting place, was not a tech demo, but that contained some interesting technology. And there was a technology that they'd shown a few years earlier um, that they'd worked on, which was a true kind of atomic fluid simulation. And and what I mean by an atomic uh, fluid simulation is normally in video games, water is just a sheet. You know, if you're uh, if you're playing Grand Theft Auto and you're sitting on a boat or a jet ski, the the water plane that your jet ski is sitting on is just like a blanket on your bed. It's just a kind of a flat sheet with, with vertexes kind of moving up and down to give the illusion of water. Uh, if you took a bucket and you put it in the ocean of GTA, you would not pull out a bucket which had water inside of it because the water is not modeled at an atomic level. And these uh, NVIDIA Flex simulations that NVIDIA had shown were simulations of true water, right? Water that collided um, and that had the characteristics of fluid. You know, you could fill a bucket of it up and pour it out. And so one of the questions that I was curious about with the, the team was, could we make a an atomic fluid simulation work in virtual reality? And what would it be like in stereoscopic 3D to interact with such a simulation? And might there be something that we could learn from that that you know might lead to a game? So short answer to that was, yes, we could make it work in VR. It was extremely compelling to interact with. There was many different ways that we could use this fluid simulation. Um, for example, you could do things like um, sculpting of clay. So you could have a big block of liquid atoms, you know, uh, in a rectangular form that you could then use your virtual reality kind of hand-tracked controllers to kind of claw at the clay and kind of literally sculpt in real time, you know, with your hands uh, using these atoms as kind of clay atoms. So we spent a lot of time thinking about that and, and we wanted to make a game that had a narrative component. But because we had such a small budget, um, one of the determinations that I'd made early on in the creative solutioning for the game was, although we won't have a game with people in it, we cannot afford to see them because we cannot afford to pay the budget of building a character mesh as well as a facial rig and doing rich facial motion capture. So the face is, you know, convincingly animated. It was just out of our budget. So how are we going to solve this? You know, how are we going to have a game where people are talking to each other where we can't afford to render people. <laughs> uh, so it was a bit of a tricky problem. And that's kind of when I had this epiphany that, you know, what if this fluid was the person, you know, and then the, the next question became, well, why would that be? Um, and that was really kind of the, the epiphany that, that drew Torn together. And Torn is basically the story about an urban explorer, this woman called Catherine Patterson, who stumbles across an abandoned mansion and this mansion is very unlike anything she's seen previously in her prior sort of blog posts, because it has these kind of very bizarre, like Willy Wonka, like mechanical tentacles entering the house and exiting the property. And it's just a very bizarre sight. And she manages to find a way into uh, to the mansion where she encounters this thing called a speck, which is a kind of a tiny, bright sort of Tinkerbell like light that can speak to her. And it kind of guides her through some of the onboarding parts of uh, the game um, to find this tool and complete certain tasks. And when she completes uh, some of these early game tasks, she's transported to kind of a parallel universe. And inside that parallel universe, she finds the disembodied mind um, of uh, Dr. Talbot, who is the person who created the mansion with all these machines. And 
essentially his uh, his mind and his body have been torn apart, which is why the game's called Torn. And the players have to interact with this, what we call the Talbot Blob, um, who kind of tells them the story and then they return to the mansion where they then complete various puzzles to advance the narrative and then they return back to Dr. Talbot where they then advance the, the story forward and so on. So, so this fluid simulation essentially became the, one of the central narrative characters of the game. So it was a very fascinating uh, project to work on and it was our use, our innovative use, I should say, of um, these uh, technologies that uh, um, got us that uh, DICE nomination. Well, Neil, it sounds like you're still, you know, continuing to push the boundaries of technology and, uh, you know, such a fascinating chat with you. And uh, long may it continue, yeah. Neil. So thank you so much for coming on and uh, being our special guest this week. It's been wonderful. Thank to you so much for having me. It's been a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you.